What do you say after that? Thank you, committee, for asking me to preach. I'm very humbled by the invitation. As you know, I, nor Pastor Campbell, nor Pastor Heaney, were scheduled to preach. And instead, our dear brother, Martin Holt, was scheduled to be here and bring us three messages on the Incarnation. But our infinitely wise father had other plans. Pastor Holt is now in the presence of this lamb of whom I am going to feebly attempt to exalt before you tonight. Understanding things that we can only grasp at and what a joy it is to consider that. I do thank you again and Pastor Graham is definitely blind. He cannot see straight and I know he loves me because love is blind. And so, thank you. One other thing before we read the Word of God and consider the subject that was assigned to me tonight. And that is, as the three of us, Pastor Campbell and Pastor Heaney and myself, were asked to preach, it kind of threw us or threw me into a, a little tailspin because each of us were given, was given a specific subject, mind the wonder of the incarnation, Pastor Campbell, the purpose of the incarnation, and then Pastor Heaney, the application to the incarnation. We realized that we would probably bump into one another in our messages. Our hope and prayer was that we would not collide. And so I hope that tonight there will be no collisions. If I do bump into you, brethren, please forgive me. And if it's truth, it's not only worth saying once, it's worth repeating over and over again. And so I beg you to pray for me as I attempt to open the Word of God and then pray for these faithful servants, these faithful ministers of the Word, these dear pastors as they will follow tomorrow night and then Thursday night. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John, a very familiar passage, a passage to most of you I do not even need to read. But since this is God's inerrant or inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, clear, preserved, and sufficient word, it is worthy for us to hear once again. And so I would invite you to turn with me to John 1. I want to read 1, 1 through 5, and then verse 14, and speak to you upon the wonder. And really, it's more than just a wonder. It is the mystery of the incarnation. John chapter 1, verse 1, hear now the word of the living God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. And then verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the 
glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We are reminded that all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray and seek the face of this great God and ask his blessing upon us. We bow before you tonight, great God our Father. We are mindful of who we are. We're mindful that you're upon your throne, that you are never disturbed, you're never confused, you're never bothered. When we are stirring about troubled, worrying, and anxious, you in your infinite self reside in calmness and peace. And tonight as the Lord of the Word and the giver of the Scriptures, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, You will work effectually in each mind and heart. Bring our minds and hearts under the rule and government of your word. I pray that you will mold us and shape us more into that image to which we have been predestinated, even the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that we will leave here tonight with hearts full of adoration, hearts filled with praise, hearts that are determined that we shall ever live to his glory and his honor. For we ask these things in the worthy name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. The wonder, the mystery of the incarnation. The word incarnation, as you may know, is not found in the Bible. However, the truth of the incarnation of the Son of God is a cardinal and indispensable truth of saving Christianity. It's the hinge on which the door of all saving Christianity swings. Now, you may not understand that, but I hope to unfold this as we consider this passage. That the incarnation is the hinge upon which the door of all saving Christianity swings. The person and the work of Jesus Christ cannot be understood without coming to grips with the incarnation. The fact is, as we have saying tonight, God came in the flesh. The New Testament constantly stresses this point. Christ is, is said to have come in the flesh, 1 John 4.1. He is said to have been sent in the flesh, Romans 8.3. He is said to have abolished in his flesh the enmity, the hostility, Ephesians 2.15. He is said to have suffered in the flesh, 1 Peter 4.1. He is said to have died in the flesh, 1 Peter 3.18, and to have made reconciliation in the body of his flesh, Colossians 1.21-22. And every spirit, and this is something that needs to be shouted from the rooftops in this postmodern age, every spirit that refuses to confess this carnal truth is expressly declared to be not of God, but of Antichrist himself, 1 John 4, 2 through 3. The incarnation was historically confessed by the apostles. The New Testament attests to that. But not only that, the fathers. And not only that, the great apologist, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, they're writing and explaining to the pagan worlds in which they live this matter of God coming in the flesh. In 318, a young man He was a deacon 
just over 20 years old. He is an administrative assistant to Alexander, the Archbishop of Alexandria. Is so moved. He had been nurtured and nursed in the scriptures. And he sits down, and some of us may think that that is too early to write. I think it is too early. But God sovereignly superintends and overrides. And he wrote this magnificent classic. And if you don't have it, you need to get it. You need to read it. The Incarnation Verbi Dei. The Incarnation of the Word of God. And oh, what a wonderful book. And if you don't have it, get the one that has the, the forward or introduction by C.S. Lewis. That is probably the greatest thing that C.S. Lewis ever wrote. But Athanasius writes this, the incarnation of the word of God, because he saw brewing on the horizon the heresy that was to disturb the church for several centuries and still plagues us to this very day. In 319, a man named Arius was ordained as presbyter or pastor at the Bacchus Church there in Alexandria. And he began to preach that there was when the Son was not. There was when the Son was not. And it was because of this that the Great Council of Nicaea was called in 325. And many church historians believe that though Athanasius was at this council, and as a deacon he was not allowed to speak, it was his book on the incarnation of the Word of God that really carried the day and swayed many of those bishops to come to understand and see biblical truth. So this truth that we're considering tonight is not only biblical, but as we trace through Christian history, we see that the fathers, the apologists, the martyrs all confessed it. The incarnation of the Son is a non-negotiable belief that must be embraced for salvation. And I remember one time hearing this world-famous evangelist say that you do not have to believe the virgin birth to be saved. And in one sense, if someone is ignorant, I can understand that. But ultimately, if you deny the virgin birth and you deny the incarnation of Christ, I believe that you are shut out from the great salvation of Jesus Christ. Well, what is this incarnation that we talk about? What does this word mean? Well, the word literally means enfleshment, or as the early church fathers sometimes put it, the enmanning of God in human body. It's kind of beautiful to think about, isn't it? The enmanning of God, the enfleshment of God in a human body. The specific details of this event are almost overwhelming. So where do we begin tonight? How do we unfold this? How do we unpack it? How can I bring you to understand and grasp to a slight degree this wonderful and glorious teaching? Where do we begin? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that we do not begin at the beginning. We began before there was ever a beginning, which is what John does for us here in this marvelous passage this evening. There are three things I want to leave with you, and the first one is this. In order to understand the incarnation, we must understand the eternal existence of the Word and the Son. Notice how John puts it. In the beginning. Now, the beginning that he's speaking of here is not the beginning as we think of it. 
It is the beginning before there was a beginning as we know it. And he tells us several things. He tells us, first of all, that the word in the beginning was the word. He has always existed, contrary to Arius, contrary to the modern Jehovah's Witnesses. There was never a time in which he was not. He has always been in the beginning was the word before there was ever a beginning as we know it. He was. But then we see furthermore, John says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. He always was with and he always was in the presence of God, literally face to face. I remember hearing one of my Greek professors talking about prostantheon, face to face with God. And I've always considered it this way. And maybe if you will indulge me, I think there's something a little more here. Some of you know I had, I have a wonderful son, but who was a prodigal for six years, went into the far country. And many a night my wife and I laid in bed, cried ourselves to sleep, holding, our hand, holding each other's hand, praying for our son. Two and a half years ago, the Lord brought him back, wonderfully converted him, I baptized him, he's in the church, and what a blessing he is. But on Fridays, I try to finish all my sermon preparation. Saturdays, I try to take off. Saturday nights, I go into my study, read over my notes, print out my sermons, and then sit there and pray. And as I was praying, a knock comes on the door, which I've always told him, you do not have to knock to come into my study. But still to this very day, he knocks and comes into my study. And so I'm not, I didn't even look up. I'm just sitting there reading my notes. And he puts his arm around me from behind. And he puts his face up beside of mine. And he says, I love you, Dad. I'm praying for you. And he walked away and I thought, that's a little like face to face, isn't it? Right up against mine. And this is the intimacy that I believe John is giving to us in this passage. It wasn't that they were just sitting across from one another, looking at one another. But there was an intimacy there. Face to face. Father with the Son. The Word with God. John tells us that he was always with and always in the presence of God. Face to face with Him. But then John tells us something else here concerning his eternal existence. Not only has he always been, and not only has he always been with and in the presence of God, but he himself is God. And God, the Word, was God, or God was the Word. So we see something automatically, right off the bat, in this great prologue, in the words of this passage of Scripture are so wonderful that we almost stagger under them, don't we? And we're told right from the start that this one has eternally existed because he himself is God. But then John quickly tells us several other things as we understand his eternal existence. And that is, he is the creator. He's letting the pagans of that world know 
contrary to Plato and Aristotle and all of the others, that there was this one who was in the presence of God, who always was, who is God himself. He created all things. And I would commend to you reading Calvin in, in his institutes and where he joins creation and salvation. And today in the world in which we live, creation is under great debate. If you deny one, I believe you're excluding yourself from another. He, he, notice what he says, all things were made through him or by him. And without him, nothing, absolutely nothing, not just the dirt and the soil and the sun and the moon, but the molecules and even the little quarks were all made by him. He is the creator. Furthermore, John tells us here, and in him was life, that he is the giver and the sustainer of all life. Whether it's physical, whether it's spiritual, whatever exists, whatever lives, has this fountainhead in this one who was the word. This one who was, this one who was always in the presence of God, who was God. John further tells us here in his eternal existence, he is the only source of light. Notice, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. We cannot comprehend, we cannot understand without this light. And any light that we have comes from him. And then the last thing that John tells us with regard to his eternal existence is that he was actively at work in this world of darkness and the darkness did not perceive him. The darkness does not perceive him. And that's why we shouldn't think it's strange when we proclaim the gospel in our pulpits, when our people go out into the marketplace and into their workplaces and they speak of Christ and the people do not respond. It shouldn't baffle us. The light shined in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. It still shines in darkness and the darkness comprehends it not. But nevertheless, what John is telling us is that this word was actively at work in the world of darkness. He is the Lord even of darkness. Not only the Lord of light, but he's the Lord of darkness. And he has control even over darkness. And so in order to understand the, the incarnation, the wandering mystery of it, we must first consider the eternal existence of the Son. But then the second thing I want us to see and want to quickly leave these verses, verses 1 through 5, and jump to verse 14 in John's prologue. And here we're told something that to me is just overwhelming. Again, you don't even, most of you don't even have to turn and read it. You know it. And John tells us, this word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I want to spend the rest of this message unpacking this verse, if I may. We see, first of all, not only the eternal existence of the Son, but secondly, I want us to see the historical entrance of the Son into this world. 
Notice John's language. And the word became flesh. In this historical entrance, we see that it was a humbling entrance. And the word become flesh. Professor Donald McLeod in his superb book of faith to live by says this. That is a deliberate contrast to the earlier statement, the word was God. We are never told that the word became God. There's a change of tense, too, as well as a change of verb. The imperfect verb is used in verse 1 tells us the eternal being of the Son of God. He always was, and he always was God. But became, in verse 14, is not imperfect. It is the heiress punctacular tense. The word was not always flesh. He became flesh at one particular decisive moment in time. And here is where the mystery and the wonder begins. Begins. That this God who always was now comes down and he humbles himself and he becomes flesh. A couple of things about this humbling entrance into this world. That in becoming flesh, God inhabited a body that was human and physical in every way. Contrary to the docetist of the day who said that Christ did not have a real body. It only appeared or seemed that he had a body. A real body of flesh and bones. A real body with blood and sinew and tissue and muscle. He inhabited a body. God humbling himself and taking upon himself a body. Calvin says Christ voluntarily took upon himself everything that is inseparable from human nature. Everything that is inseparable from human nature. A body just like yours and mine. It, it was a body that could be touched. It was a body that could be felt. It was a body that was subject to every human frailty. Let me repeat that. It was a body that was subject to every human frailty, yet without sin. This is wonderful to me. It was a body that needed nourishment, and he sucked milk from Mary's breast. It was a body that learned to walk. He just didn't come out of Mary's womb and immediately he's up doing jumping jacks and he's running around the basketball court. He came out of Mary's womb. He sucked the milk from her breast. He learned to crawl. He learned to stand. And believe it or not, God in the flesh learned to walk just like you and I. And what do we do, or at least what our parents told us we did, we'd take a step and we'd Plump down on our behinds. I say this with respect. I am not trying to be sacrilegious here. He learned to walk just like you and I. He learned his Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, just like every other little Jewish boy. 
All of his life, he learned obedience. Isn't that what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 5, 8? Though he were a son, though he were the son, yet learned he obedience. I can tell you, and I'll touch on this a little later, this is something that I want to explore throughout eternity, don't you? Yet learned he obedience. It was a body that was subject to every human frailty such as you and I have, yet without sin. Calvin observes that the sinlessness of Christ refers to a real humanity, not a different humanity than you and I possess, a very real humanity just like ours, yet without sin. And then Calvin goes on to say, because to assert the sinlessness of deity would be quite unnecessary. The sinlessness refers to his humanity, a very real human body. If you've never read the book or do not have the book Calvin, or Darwin's God by Cornelius Hunter, it's worthy for you to get. In it, he tells us about John Millais' painting, Christ in the House of His Parents. This painting was first exhibited at the Royal Academy in London in 1850. In the painting, the boy Jesus, Hunter says, had injured his hand in his father's carpentry shop. Mother Mary attends to the boy while Joseph continues with his work. Outside the sheep, Outside the door, sheep patiently await their future Savior. Hunter says the scene was both symbolic and realistic, with wood scraps scattered on the ground, workers going about their duties. But the scene was altogether too realistic for a generation whose God had become abstract and spiritualized. This view of God was lost to the Victorians. Could God really have bruised his hand in a messy carpenter's shop? The London Times complained that the painting was revolting. Its attempts to associate the Holy Family with the meticulous is disgusting, it said. Blackwood's Magazine says we can hardly imagine anything more ugly, graceless, or unpleasant. And even Charles Dickens weighed in upon this very Controversial subject, calling the painting mean, odious, revolting, and repulsive. But nevertheless, what Millet was portraying in that painting is a real humanity of Christ. You see, after the Council of Nicaea, which many think settled the, the matter of the Trinity, it really did not. For the next 40 or so years, there was real controversy in the church, and it wasn't until Theodosius I became the, the sole emperor that he finally settled the matter of Arianism. He drove the Arians out, would not allow them even in the capitals, would not even allow them to have their churches. And two years later, he convened the, the council, the second great ecumenical council of Constantinople in 381. They settled the matter of the Trinity. They settled the matter of the deity of Christ. But what came swirling out of that, emerging from this, was a struggle over the humanity of Christ, over this great mystery of the hypostatic union. 
Men, rise up. Polinarius had spoken, Eutyches, and so forth. Nestorius. And so this debate goes now from the Trinity and the Deity to face the real humanity of Christ. Did Jesus, did this Jesus, this Christ, have one nature or two? One council led to another, the Council of Ephesus 431, the Council of Chalcedon 451. And to me, one of the greatest creeds of the Christian church is the Council of Chalcedon. Beautiful, wonderful stuff as they have taken the word of God and expounded it to us so beautifully and wonderfully. But the point is that God, in this historical entrance into the world, it was a humbling entrance. He had a body, a human physical body, and he inhabited a body that was human in its nature in every way. What do I mean by that? I'm seeing some of you a little uncomfortable, it seems. Good. I want you to think through these things. Is Jesus some spiritualized person up here that has no real relation? There's no way we can identify with him. Not only did he have a real physical body, God, God in man, a human body. But not only that, this human body was human in its nature in every way. He possessed a, an ordinary human psychology. He had a soul. He not only had a soul, but he possessed an ordinary human mind. He possessed ordinary human emotions. I mean, we heard about it sometime or another today. Jesus weeping. Those were real emotions. Those were not fake. They weren't plastic. Here's the God-man. He rejoices in the Spirit, we're told in Luke 10. He had real, ordinary human emotions. He possessed an ordinary human will, contra to the monothelites. Now the controversy came. Did Christ have one nature or two natures? Did he have one will or two wills? And our church fathers settled that issue. He, had, he is one person, the second person of the, the divine and holy trinity. One person with two natures. And he has two wills as he prays in the garden. Not my will, but thy will be done. And so here. God humbles himself. His entrance, his historical entrance, is a humbling entrance. John says, and the word became flesh. Flesh, just like what you possess, only without sin. It was not tainted by sin. It was not mixed with sin. It was sinless. But secondly, it was a condescending entrance. Notice the language that John uses, and the word became flesh. And dwelt. Just want to dwell on the word dwelt. It's a condescending entrance. Not only does he humble himself, not only is it a humbling entrance, but it's a condescending entrance. 
He dwelt among us. He left glory and the high praises of heaven, and he condescended to live amidst the curses and profanities of men. All he had ever known were the high praises of the holy angels. But now he comes down, and he not only humbles himself, but he condescends to dwell among us. Not over us, not around us, not apart from us, but among us in the midst of us. A king born in a stable instead of a palace. Lying in a feeding trough instead of a bed. Wrapped in coarse cloth instead of silk. A king, a lord, David's son, living in an obscure, insignificant region of the country. A byword, a backwater area, Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet he condescends to dwell there. Grow up there. Instead of David's royal capital, Jerusalem. A governor apprenticing in a carpenter shop, getting calluses on his hands instead of studying at the finest private schools and entering the most prestigious universities. It was a condescending entrance into this world, but also it was an identifying entrance. John says he came and dwelt among, among Not just to be among us, but to be one with us. And not just to be one with us, but to be one who would identify himself with us. He's not, that's why I could say, the writer of Hebrews could say he's not ashamed to call them, what? Brethren. Not ashamed to call them brethren. Brethren. He came to identify with us. And then in this historical entrance, secondly, we see not only is it, thirdly, not only is it an identifying entrance, it's a sympathizing entrance. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. I love this personal pronoun, don't you? Not among them but us. You see, I love, as you read these creeds of the early church, they use this expression several times, for us men and our salvation. For us men and our salvation. He came to sympathize with us to experience our human limitations and weaknesses. Now, don't get me wrong. He did not lay, I do not believe that he laid aside his deity. I do not believe that he ceased to be what he had always been. But he became something he had never been before. He became a man with us. And he was able to experience our human limitations and weaknesses, to feel our human misery and woe, to enter into our human sufferings and sorrows, to see and smell the human stench of our sins, to sense our human despair and hopelessness, and to taste for us our greatest 
human fear. I can remember, I think it was about a month ago, I get this email. And the word says, pray for Pastor Dale Smith. Had a heart attack. I mean, here's the the picture of health, the epitome of health. I thought, man, I'd be dead long before Dale Smith. What's the first thing that hit my mind when I fear? Man, I my mind goes to him. My mind goes to his dear wife and his eight children. He has his quiver full. Fear. Death. Job called it the prince of terrors. It haunts every one of us. Does it not? And yet he came in his humanity to taste for us our greatest human fear. No wonder we can say, oh, grave, where is your victory? Because he, in his flesh, tasted death. Actually experienced death. It wasn't that he just slumbered or appeared to have died He actually and really died in his humanity. It was a sympathizing death or sympathizing entrance. He can sympathize with us, which we'll touch on just a little later. The hymn writer puts it so well in that great hymn, Low Air Rose, they're blooming in our Trinity hymnal. Oh, Savior, child of Mary, who felt our human woe. Oh, Savior, King of glory. Who does our weakness know? How can we sing that? Because this eternal word, this eternal God came down, humbled himself, condescended to come and dwell among us, to be one of us, to be one among us, and hallelujah, to be one for us. Here is this historical entrance. And I can't leave this section without, again, quoting the Hebrew writer, Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest. If I stop there, that would be disturbing, wouldn't it? We do not have a high priest. That cannot sympathize with our infirmities. How can that be so? Our high priest, in essence, what the writer is saying is we do have a high priest who can sympathize with our infirmities, our weaknesses. You battle with sin. I battle with sin. Thank God he battled with sin. But he didn't yield to it. I do believe in the impeccability of Christ, by the way, lest any of you are biting your nails and are a little nervous back there. But he faced sin. He faced the adversary, the archenemy of our souls. He experienced everything that we experienced. Do you grow tired? He grew tired and fell asleep on a ship. 
Do you experience hurt? Do you experience betrayal? Most obvious pastors, if you've been in the pastoral ministry for any length of time, you can say along with David, that familiar one, the one with whom I walked to the house of God with, he betrayed me. Every one of you have faced betrayal. But I want to tell you, he faced a greater betrayal. Not only did Judas betray him, but the language of Romans 8 is that even on the cross, the father betrayed him. The father turned his back on him. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, he betrayed him. Abandoned him to the cross. We hear these these heart-wrenching words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All for us. All for our sake. We do not have a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. But was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. What a great high priest. And this can only be understood in the incarnation. Thirdly, not only do we see a divine existence, a historical entrance, but lastly, we see a divine exhibition of the Son in the incarnation. Notice what John says in the rest of verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And if he had said nothing more than that, I would say, that's enough. But he doesn't stop there. And he continues and he says some things just glorious. Notice what he says. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's where it all comes together in the wonder of the incarnation. A divine exhibition. Well, an exhibition of what? First of all, it was an exhibition of glory. We beheld his glory. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only begotten, the only begotten son of the father. I love Chrysostom's favorite expression of Christ. He called him the only begotten of the father. He would use that expression over and over and over in all of his preaching. The only begotten of the father. You reject him and the father will reject you. It was a divine exhibition of glory. The holy angels, the cherubim and the seraphim, had beheld his glory before coming to earth. But here's what I believe we need to understand. They only beheld his reflected glory. If I'm to take Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 to be true, That these holy created beings that are around the throne of God, that delight in doing his will, he but speaks and eternity fills with his voice. He but just simply nods and these holy created beings fly swiftly to do his will. But as they're around his throne with two wings they cover their feet, with two wings they hover, and two wings they do what? They cover their eyes. Now, they beheld his glory in eternity past, but it was reflected glory. What do I mean by that? Let me illustrate. I remember one time as a little boy growing up in the backwoods part of North Carolina and getting lost. 
believe it or not. And my daddy come looking for me. And I can remember seeing that old 49 Ford pull up. I mean, it's dark. It is so dark. And I'm out there in the woods. And I don't know where I'm going. And I see these lights. And I run toward those lights. And when I see them, they're so bright. What do I do? I go. Well, this is the way. I couldn't look directly into those headlights. I could only see the reflected light because they were so bright. This is how the angels beheld his glory in eternity past. But now John comes and he says something. He tells us that we beheld his glory. John tells us we saw something, the holy angels, the seraphim, the cherubim, could not behold directly. We beheld his glory. Really, John? We beheld his glory? How? How could John say we beheld his glory? Well, I would submit to you several several ways in which we have beheld his glory in his ways. Here is God in, in flesh dwelling among us. And his ways were so different. His ways were so unique. His ways were so... Otherworldly in one sense of the word. He was one with us, one among us, one of us, but yet so different from us. Mary and Joseph. Joseph never. My daddy didn't use the rod. He used the hickory switch. Joseph never had to take a rod to Jesus. Mary never had to say, if you don't clean up your room, Jesus... I'm going to whip you. In the rabbinical schools, none of the rabbis ever said, hey, Jesus, pay attention. His ways were so different, so pure. And they watched him live and they watched him move. And in his ways, they beheld his glory. His words. I love that. Illustration in John 7. The Pharisees send a troop of soldiers to arrest Jesus. Jesus stands up and he's preaching. And they're there and they're left with their mouths gaping open. And the assembly disbands. Jesus walks away. The soldiers forgot why they had even come there. And they go back and they said, where is he? And what did they say? Never man spake like this man. Oh, to have heard his words, to have heard his sermons, to have heard the Sermon on the Mount, to have heard him with his apostles in the upper room. John says we beheld his glory, but of course, his glory is never more clearly seen than in his work. Of course, he is manifested in brilliant whiteness on the Mount of Transfiguration. But there on the cross... His glory is displayed. There as two thieves are dying between. He is dying between two thieves. One is ranting and raving and cussing. The other one is ranting and raving and cussing. And they're listening to this one in the middle. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
And he begins to see something different. And he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, Amen, Amen. To you I say, today shall you be with me in paradise. And the centurion's there looking up. And as he gives up the Spirit of God and dies, they said, Surely, surely this was the Son of God. But it doesn't end there. And his resurrection, his glory is seen, his ascension. I've got to hurry on if I'm going to finish tonight. He ascends into heaven. His incarnation was a divine exhibition of glory. Secondly, it was a divine exhibition of grace. Notice what John says here. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace. Oh, I love that, don't you? Grace is a charming sound, harmonious to the ear. Heaven with its echo shall resound, and all the earth shall hear. Grace first inscribed my name in God's eternal book. Twas grace that gave me to the Lamb who all my sorrows took. Grace taught my heart to pray and made mine eyes o'erflow. Tis grace that's kept me to this day and will not let me go. He was full of grace. God, by the way, has always operated on the principle of grace. And for those of our dear friends who do not believe in the perpetuity of the moral law and do not believe in the perpetuity of the fourth commandment. And again, that's why I was, uh, Mike, our brother Mike commanded, commended Beale. He's got a section in there on the perpetuity of the Sabbath, showing it's a creation ordinance. But we need to understand that even law was gracious and that God gave his law graciously to reveal something of himself, to reveal what he requires of us, the way wherein we should walk. So law is even gracious. And though grace was exhibited in such persons as Noah, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's not the other way around. The Lord found grace in the eyes of Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Abraham found grace, the patriarchs, Moses, David, and God's servants, the prophets. All of them were recipients of divine grace. But it was never so displayed as it was displayed in Christ. His words were full of grace. His ways were patterns of grace. His works were pictures of grace. And his salvation is a marvel of grace. Who can take a fallen depraved, ruined, broken life and transform it into something useful, valuable, and precious. Only Christ, who is full of grace. And then, not only was it an exhibition of grace, it was an exhibition of truth. Notice what John says. And we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, and the implication is full of truth. He had dogmatically stated, contrary to the pluralism of our day and the exclusivity of what we believe to be in Christ, he says, I 
How audacious. Right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. If I said that, it would be the right thing for you to do to stone me. I mean, how audacious could he be? Come unto me, he says. Man, I don't dare tell anyone to come unto me. I'm the last person I want them to come to. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I am the way. You want to know the way? I'm the way. You want to know truth? I'm truth. You want life? It's only found in me. He could state that. He could state that dogmatically. He could state that without equivocation. Pilate, when Jesus leaves Pilate and goes to Herod's judgment hall and then brought back again to Pilate's praetorium, he says to Jesus, what is truth? And I like the way the Savior answered him. You know how he answered him? He didn't answer him. There's a pause there. You look, I believe you look at that and you can see. Why did Jesus not answer Pilate? Because truth personified was standing right before this Roman governor. And later on he would say, he reveals to Pilate, for this very purpose I have come into this world to bear witness of the truth. All other ways are false. Christ is the truth-bearing word. He's the truth-bearing son. And if you do not know him, all your life is false. And if you do not worship him, all your existence is idolatry. And if you do not serve him, all of your activity is bondage and slavery. Because freedom is only found in him who is truth. And thus, the exposition of this passage, that we see his eternal existence, his historical entrance, and then his divine exhibition. Very quickly in the time that we have, and I won't keep us too long because I know we've got two more full days. What can we learn from these things? And i leave you with these few. First of all, Bethlehem is not an obscure place to be remembered once a year, but should be remembered often. And I might even say daily with much contemplative thought. Bethlehem was the humble staging ground for God to make his glorious entrance into this world. Interesting that he comes into this world in the little town of Bethlehem. Secondly, I would remind you, and I was told that there might be those here tonight who are not Christians, who have never been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And I want to say to you that tonight, that if you have any hope at all, it is initially bound up in the incarnation. You can have no hope apart from the incarnation. Every birth leaves us with a sense of great miracle, at least it does to me. I love it when the young couples in our church, I'm old enough now, I'm able to see this a number of times, Young couples in our church court get married. Next thing you know, the wife is with child. Next thing you know, the baby is born. 
one of the hospitals there in Shreveport, every time a baby is born, they play over the loudspeaker system throughout the entire hospital, Brahms lullaby. And I always go to the room. They won't let me in the delivery room, of course. But I always go to the room where, where they bring the baby out, they wash it, and they put the stuff in its eyes and take blood and all this stuff, and they let me watch it through these. And I look there and I say, this is indeed a miracle, isn't it? But this birth, this birth, given by Mary, the Virgin. It's not just a miracle. It is that. But it's much more than that. Brethren, it's a mystery. And every sinner's hope is initially bound up in this incarnation. The only way that you can be reconciled to a thrice holy God is that God came into this world and manned himself with a body just like yours, to identify himself with someone like you, that he might save you and bring you back to God. Thirdly, and as Calvin says, Christ came down in his incarnation that he might lift us up to the Father. Thirdly, there's a man in glory tonight. Not just a God in glory, there's a man in glory. There is only one God, Paul tells us, right? And one mediator between God and man. Who? The man, Christ Jesus. There's one there. And he is for you if you're in him tonight. He has come into this world for you. To dwell among people just like you. To face anything and everything that you could possibly face. He yielded himself to death, even the death on the cross. He went into the grave and he was under the influence and the authority of death for three days and three nights. That as the Heidelberg Catechism tells us, that he might sanctify the grave for the believer. And he came up from that grave for you. And he ascended to the Father's right hand, and he took his lawful place there at the throne of authority as the Father says to him, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. And there he is for us. There's a man in glory tonight. He's not distant, long ago and far away. The God-man is there. And he is not only for you, but he sympathizes with you. I find that great, great comfort. I find it so comforting. Oh, how horrible it is to wrestle with sin. We get up in the morning, put on the whole armor of God. We're determined. I'm going to live to your praise and glory today. And the next thing you know, we have already... In this battle, this warfare with remaining sin, it's already tripped us again. But thank God there's one in heaven for me and for you. A man in glory who sympathizes with you.
Come, my child. I know the temptation. I overcame it for you. I will forgive it for you. There's a man in glory. Fourthly, the mystery of godliness that we now know, in part, I believe shall be explored throughout all eternity. I love what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16. God, great indeed we confess, is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up to glory. But he says, great is the mystery of godliness. He explains it, but he doesn't take away this word mystery, does he? And I believe from the depths of my soul, I think I can prove it exegetically, that all through eternity... We will be adoring this incomprehensible God. Have we tasted of his love? Yes. But only just a little. Have we tasted of his power? Of course. We've been raised spiritually from the dead. But we have not even yet begun to see. Have we heard of his wrath and fled from it? Yes. Throughout all eternity we will be exploring this great mystery that God became man and dwelt among us. And we were rejoicing around the throne of God. We'll still be exploring the great mystery of the incomprehensibility of God and this God-man that's there, different from us but like one of us. Fifthly, I would leave a word here for us as an association. As an association, this biblical and confessional truth is one with which we can never tamper or ever negotiate. When this high-powered evangelist said, you don't need to worry about the virgin birth. You can be saved. Don't worry about that. My friends, I think that's dangerous. The scriptures state it without any equivocation, and so does our confession. And we must never tamper with it. We must never negotiate it. No matter how much we want to see people brought savingly to Christ. One woman, one Mormon woman, she said, I don't believe in the virgin birth. I said, well, that's your problem, not mine. You've got to take that up with God, not me. I'm just telling you what it says. We must maintain our confessional fidelity. And then I close with this. Ah, oh, dear pastor friends, dear pastor brethren tonight, what a glorious message we have to preach to a perishing, broken world. There's one who came. And then manned himself, took upon flesh, lived among us. Yes, he knows. And he can sympathize, but greater than that, he can save. Hallelujah. What a Savior. May we boldly and compassionately preach this great message. 
into a world that is still in darkness, still in deadness, and so desperately needs the truth of the incarnation. Let's pray. Our Father, tonight, as we have considered your word, I realize that there was so much left unsaid, so much more that could be said, and I pray that you will grant us the mercy of a mind and heart that will dig, work through these things. May we be, as Professor McLeod says, obsessed with Christology, that we might know something more of his glory. I pray, O Spirit of the living God, it is your office work tonight to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. And for those who are outside of Christ, do such. Draw them to immediate repentance and faith. And, O Lord Jesus, we bow before you tonight that you would come and dwell among us to be one of us, to be for us, that you might save us. We adore you tonight and thank you for the great offices that you held in your ministry upon the earth and still exercise even this very moment the great offices of prophet, priest, and king. Thank you, O Lord Jesus, that you did not despise the virgin's womb and came for us men and our salvation. Great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we adore you tonight. Seal these truths to our hearts and bring forth fruit that remains as we ask in the worthy name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.